Who are those of your cultural lineage who gave you the confidence to be you? Who used their voice and spoke up in the face of injustice in a time where it was safest to remain silent out of fear of persecution for their identity, their gender, and beliefs? My ancestors include leaders like Yuri Kochiyama and Grace Lee Boggs, who taught me I don't have to be quiet and obedient, but I, I can be a loud, unfiltered, and unapologetic Asian American. Because our ancestors are those who we choose and strive to embody. So celebrate the ones to come, including the ancestors you are becoming. And while many people may believe in reincarnation, like myself, this doesn't give anyone the right to claim someone else's culture as their own, just because you may think you were Native American in your past life. Being born in this body means we get to excavate the narratives that have informed our current power and place in the world while creating new stories of hope, resilience, and possibilities for the next generation without ignoring or spiritually bypassing the trauma it took to get here. So sit with that discomfort. That was June Kalsik, an artist activist, community organizer, and life doula healing generations before and after. With the yearning we have to connect with others, often comes the yearning to connect with ourselves. But who are we? Are we the sum of our life experiences? What about where we came from? Are we the sum of our family's experiences? How far back do we go? Are we the sum of our cultural heritage, traced back for generations through multiple continents? Are we the sum of our DNA, perhaps containing trace amounts of Neanderthal in our mostly homo sapien genetic material? My name is Lori Booth. On this episode of Genuine Human Connection, I explore the way humans connect to other humans through tracing our origins. The connection we seek with ourselves that prompts us to ask, who am I, leads to the question, where did I come from? But who is this I that we are speaking about? Is it the physical body? Is it our self-identity? Is it the very essence of our beingness or a composite of it all? Ancestry is the biological lineage of a person. It is the mother and father, their parents and their parents. It is the DNA of our genes that informs the length and build of our bones, the color and texture of our skin, the incidence and likelihood of disease, the strength or weakness of our physical capabilities, and yes, whether we have Neanderthal as part of our genetic makeup. Everybody has an ancestry simply because their genetic material had to come from somewhere. But what does it tell us about ourselves simply knowing whether we derive from people who are tall or short, or who are prone to being nearsighted? Not much. What we want to know by exploring who our ancestors are is not so much things like what was the color of their skin, but how did having that color of skin or being born in that region of the world affect their relationship to life? What were their beliefs and practices having come from that ethnic background? 
That is when we cross over from ancestry into heritage. Archaeologist Dr. Sada Mare. What is cultural heritage? Cultural heritage is the tangible remains and intangible traits passed on from generations and kept in the present and conferred for the benefit of future generations. What are these tangible remains then? We are talking about buildings, monuments, landscapes, works of art, artifacts, books, and ancient scripts. We are also talking about the intangible, including values and traditions and features that are attributed cultural values. We are talking also about spiritual places such as springs, mountains, and trees. Heritage in terms of traditions includes performance arts such as theater, music, stories, and cultural practices. Generally, it's accepted that heritage binds us to our past. Heritage provides a communal identity and a sense of shared experiences. Heritage binds us to our past and provides a communal identity. In an essay by Asha Frost, she writes about white women who envy her Native American cultural heritage and wish they had the same. She then asks if they also want the racism that comes with that heritage. A few months ago, in an exercise by diversity researcher Robin D'Angelo, she asked her white listeners to write down their own cultural heritage. As a white woman, I took out pen and paper, but nothing came. I am a writer and vocal and love self-exploration, but nothing came. Surely I have a cultural heritage, but what is it? Do I write down how my family settled as ranchers in South Dakota in the 1880s? Is that my heritage? Or where my DNA comes from, my German, Irish, Italian, English, and whatnot ancestry, where is the heritage in that? I'm not from any particular ethnic group or religious lineage. I don't have a village in Europe where we speak our own dialect and can trace family traditions back for generations. I felt like I was floating disconnected from any sort of heritage. Is that what D'Angelo wanted me to discover from the exercise she assigned? Perhaps the white women Asha Frost talks about also feel disconnected, without communal identity, without anchor. They see Frost's cultural anchors and yearn for similar connection. This was all speculative pondering, but in my research about heritage, among the plethora of people of color giving lectures and dissertations on heritage, I found a white male professor from Barbados extolling the pride he had for the heritage of his country. He spoke at length about the white male founders of Barbados and noticeably downplayed the fact it had been founded on the backs of black slaves. Ah, there is my heritage what binds me to my past and provides a communal identity, and it is not a pretty one. I was born to ancestors that committed genocide and profited off of slave labor, and I am still profiting off the sins of my ancestors. If heritage anchors us to community and gives us a sense of identity, is that who I am? Yes, I think that cannot be ignored. 
As June Kalsis said at the beginning of this episode, we have an opportunity to excavate past narratives and build new hope without ignoring the trauma it took to get here. I strive to be better than my ancestors, so also, no, that is not who I am. But if heritage binds us to our past and provides a communal identity, and I reject the traditions of my heritage, am I now left without identity, without community? Is any of it changeable, malleable? The past certainly isn't, but the future is. My heritage isn't, but my legacy is. In my legacy, I go back to my origins, not to my American ancestors, nor to my Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Mediterranean ancestors, nor even to the first known Homo sapiens, for I am not my DNA, nor the transient nature of tradition, culture, and heritage that changes with the passage of time. My origins go back to a time before physical inception. Many of us instinctively know ourselves to be more than our physical bodies, more than the labels people attach to us, more than the descriptors we use for ourselves. So let's carry that thought forward and connect for a moment at the most basic level with the recognition that, at its most fundamental, being human is being. Awareness itself. Before I add woman, white, American or mother onto the words I am, I am simply I am. South Indian mystic Dr. Baskaran Pillai. Identifying yourself with your job, with your skin, and with your uh, family, with your skill set, it is all coming from your neocortex, particularly uh, the frontal lobe. That is where your identity comes. That is where all your uh, limitations, all your low self-esteem, all your frustrations, all of them are here because you are identifying yourself with that. Under the color of our skin or the content of our character is the inalienable fact that we all are. Rene Descartes described it as, I think, therefore I am. However, even the meditator, free of thought, still is. Spiritual teachers call this essence of our consciousness soul, which religious institutions would later heap centuries of baggage, guilt, and shame onto, making many of us close our ears and turn away. Dear listener, I must here make a disclaimer that I am not a fan of religions necessarily. They do serve their purpose for many, and I do not disparage anything that aids a person in their journey through life, but it is the spiritual scholars I mean to invoke when researching the teachings that shed light on our origins, not the dogma, rituals, and misinterpretations that later muddied their teachings. Yes, these scholars lived long before academia structured knowledge in a way that preserved teachings, and much of their language is archaic and outdated, but that should not be used as an excuse to dismiss the intangible heritage in the wisdom of our ancestors. Marcus Mosea Garvey Jr., 
a political activist and civil rights leader from Jamaica, speaking to a crowd nearly a hundred years ago. White man has the idea of a white God, let him watch it as God as he desires. He has found a new ideal. Because once our God has no color, and yet it is human to see everything for one's own spectacles. And since the white people have seen their God through their white spectacles, we have only now started to see our God to our own The idea Garvey plays around with in his speech that if man is made in the image of God, God must not only be white, but every color, is of course making God in the image of man, or, as he put it, seeing God through our own spectacles. Garvey states, God has no color. This bit of knowledge that God is not made in the image of man, but rather that man is made in the image of God, can be found in teachings older than Jesus, older than the Torah, older than the Bhagavad Gita. In an earlier episode exploring the brotherhood of man, I make a point of saying that the term man has come only to represent half of the world's population, whereas its etymology can be traced back to its use as a word synonymous with the word soul, or rather the essence of consciousness, not man as meaning a person with a beard and penis. That use of the word man came later in the evolution of language and more modern scripture. By this evidence, God is not made in the image of male persons with two legs, with skin color and beards, but rather the essence of our very consciousness is made in the image of God's consciousness. God not being an anthropomorphic hominid dwelling in space, but the larger, overarching consciousness of which our own self is made out of and contained within. At a TEDx talk from 2014 in Noosa, Australia, spiritual scholar Dada Gunamuktananda explores consciousness as our innermost awareness of self and the greater consciousness that many religions and spiritual paths label as God. Both the substance and the intention of the universe come from a deeper reality than the material one we normally perceive with our minds and senses. And that reality is consciousness an all-pervading, blissful awareness inherent in everybody and everything. Just as your own consciousness is the essence of your own mind, cosmic consciousness is the essence of the entire universe. It exists within everything, and everything exists within it. Essentially, everybody and everything is part of and full of consciousness. According to biologist Rupert Sheldrake, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. (laughs) And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy of the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. Max Planck, the the father of quantum theory, considered consciousness as fundamental. 
I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything that we regard as existing postulates consciousness. This from the pioneer of quantum theory. It's easy to look outside, not so easy to look within. According to yogic teachings, consciousness lies within, and so we must look for it there. But here's the catch, not intellectually. It's not something we can comprehend with the mind. Take the case of a uh, light bulb, for example. A light bulb is capable of shining light on the room around it, but not on the power which illuminates it. In the same way, we're capable of comprehending the world around us, but not the consciousness which animates us. It's beyond the normal functioning of the mind, beyond words, beyond even thought itself. The core of our being is not something that can even be spoken about, let alone thought of. The core of our being cannot be spoken of, let alone thought of. If this is true, how can any amount of research into our genealogy or tracing the lineage of antiques back to the past tell us about who we are? How does Guna Muktananda's theory about who we are help us genuinely connect with others? What if, though, mind, matter, and space were all full of consciousness? What if the possibility of consciousness is a higher reality were every bit as real as any of our current constructs of reality? And what if it could give us, if only we were open to it, some very real advantages in understanding our world and where we fit into it, compared to some very serious disadvantages of a materialist worldview. In a materialist worldview of an arbitrary, uh, mechanistic, unfeeling universe, there's every reason to feel alienated, lonely, fearful, and depressed. And if we don't feel it ourselves, we all too often see it in others and in the malaise of our society. Materialism doesn't engender optimism in people or society. On the other hand, in a blissfully conscious universe, there's every reason to feel inherently connected to people and to the world, to feel loved, hopeful, happy, and at peace with oneself and others. Loneliness might have a solution in the recognition of and connection to our own origins and consciousness and the subsequent recognition of and connection to consciousness as a whole of which it could be argued we come from and are a part of still. And the more we expand our sense of reality, our sense of being, the more connected we feel to all beings. For the sake of humanity's struggle, sense of loneliness, occurrence of depression, and suicide rate. These inner and global states of consciousness are at least worth further investigation. In the next episode, I speak with voice vibration sound healer Judith Quinn from her home in England, where she is an author and member of the Association of Transformational Leaders of Europe. Thank you.
More episodes of The Genuine Human Connection can be found on my website, www.lauriebooth.com. That's L-O-R-I-B-O-O-T-H. Sources and music credits can be found in the show notes for this podcast. This has been Lori Booth, host for the Genuine Human Connection podcast. <laughs>